praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with us to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Well, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate uh, in my household, and I'm not really going to ask you to settle that debate. I'm not even going to tell you who's on which side, or at least I'm going to try not to. But uh, the ongoing debate is around germs. And the, the, the content of the debate is, is really this. Should you avoid them like the plague? That's one side of the debate. Or are they necessary for the building up of antibodies and things like this? And, and kind of the idea that God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. You've heard this before, right? This is, this is kind of the ongoing debate in our household. And in fact... If you probably, I, I imagine, if you ask a lot of people, I've noticed this especially true in the younger generations, if you ask that, this is probably an ongoing debate in their home as well, that there's really two, the two sides of the argument are present under one roof. All right? Now, the side that says avoid them like the plague, you'll know. You know who they are because they have Purell with them at all times. Every crevice of their car has a little bottle of Purell, about halfway empty or so. Um, their purses have, I think I just gave away who's on which side. Uh, <laughs> ah, almost had it. <laughs> have Purell wherever they go. Uh, if you go to the grocery store, you got to take the, uh, the cart cover with you. You know what I'm talking about? You have the cart cover, you put it on the cart, and you put the little kid inside. When the kid grows up and goes to college, they get their very own embroidered cart cover. I don't know who's pushing the cart, but they're going to sit in it, you know, and somebody is going to push them around. They don't need to get sick. Uh, and uh, you'll notice them also because their hands are, are covered in their own blood because they wash their hands so frequently, especially this time of year. They're just cracking and dry. Now, there's the other side, the side that tends to ignore the germs altogether. Um, they, uh, they, they, ask them, they ask the question constantly, well, if, you don't have, if you're not exposed to germs, how are you going to build any, any antibodies? They make the, the scientific argument, right? The uh, sign in the restaurant bathrooms that say, all employees must wash hands before returning to work, that's for them, right? That's... That's who that's for. It's directed at them. You have to tell the other crowd. You got to tell the ones that think germs are okay. They have the sign on the sink. The five-second rule is generally just a principle to them, right? Falls on the floor. Look, if it, what's ten? Are we really griping over another five seconds? Are we saying that it's now no longer edible if it's just sat there for another second longer? Really, a day? I mean, really, if it hasn't moved and there's been nothing, then how? Who's to say? Right. The point is, though, that cleanliness comes with prohibitions, doesn't it? There's prohibitions to cleanliness. For instance, in our household, if your hands aren't clean, you can't assist in the cooking. Right? There's a prohibition. You can't stand on the step stool and get your hands in the cookies and the cookie dough and all that if you haven't washed your hands. Or if you sneeze, we try not to serve that. So just... Uh, <laughs> But, but there's, there's certain prohibitions that come with cleanliness. If you, if you don't wash your hands, you can't sit at our dinner table. We're not going to let you just eat if you don't wash your hands first. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to encounter an unclean person. Now, that 
doesn't really have anything to do with germs. That's not about germs. That's not really what it is. But ritual purity. Determining who can come into the presence of God. Who can actually be inside the temple. Who can worship there. Jesus is going to come into contact with a person where it has been decreed you cannot come anywhere near God. Well, there's a problem. Jesus is God in the flesh. So what happens? What is the result? So we're going to see that play out in our text this morning. And Matthew's making some really strong points here, really profound, that I think we need to look at. What happens with the, with the eternally pure Son of God when He encounters the communicable diseases that leave one unclean before God? What, what happens when that takes place? Well, we're going to read it in our text this morning. With that in our mind, let's look at Matthew 8. 1 to 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. As I mentioned last week, we're transitioning into a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. And there are several reasons that we know that this is a new section. One, because Matthew ends the previous section with the words that are familiar that he repeats several times throughout the Gospel. He says, when Jesus finished... And that gives you a clue that we're going to a new section in the gospel. He uses that phrase five times within the gospel of Matthew. All of them trigger us into understanding that it's a new section. But there's a second reason we know that it's a new section. Every section of Matthew is built nearly the same way. First, there's a long narrative of Jesus going and doing things, interacting with people. And it's followed by a long block of Jesus' teaching. So, if you take your mind back to the first section, you have chapter 4 where it describes him being baptized, going out into the wilderness and interacting with, with Satan out there and resisting temptation, then coming back in and healing people and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a narrative section that's showing him walk about and do things, and it's followed by what? A long block of Jesus' teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5-7. to 7. All of that forms one big section. So if you were to lay Matthew out on a sheet of paper on, on the floor and you were to have Jesus' words in red, what you would see are the sections clearly marked by black words and then followed by red words. That's one section. Black words, red words, black words, red words. Five different sections throughout the book of Matthew. Now this section is going to have a natural connection to the section that, it, that precedes it. Now remember in, in that passage we talked about last, last week, it ends with Matthew telling us that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority. Now he transitions and what he's going to show us in chapters 8 and 9 is Jesus walking about and meeting with various people and the people that he comes in contact with, there are miracles that take place, whether it be healing or calming the storm, various other kinds of things like that. And all of this is meant to demonstrate one really strong principle and that is that the kingdom of God 
has a real impact on the world around us. That the kingdom of God has a real impact on the world around us. So we're going to see people that are, are healed. We're going, to, we're going to see Jesus cure the incurable diseases. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to calm storms. But a real world impact on the kingdom of God is what we're seeing, or on the, on the world around us is what we're seeing. Jesus is coming in, and, that, and the kingdom that he's bringing has a tangible impact on the lives of people. So in other words, this isn't just some idle philosophy out there that says we can ascribe to this mentally and, and we, can, we can think about these things and, and we, we become different or, or, or whatever that you see a lot of times manifest itself in Eastern religions. That's not what is happening here. This is a real tried and true kingdom and it has a real world impact on everyday people. And so we'll see this real-world impact pointed out to us in a couple of ways. First, we're going to see that the kingdom of God supersedes the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God supersedes the kingdom of the world. So what are we going to see? There is no amount of blindness. There's no amount of demon possession. There's no amount of incurable disease that can actually confront Jesus and render Him incapable that can undo the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God can't seriously impact. There's nothing that can overcome the kingdom of the world. Even physical death, he's going to say, cannot conquer, conquer this kingdom. But the second way we're going to play that out, or see it played out, is we'll see that Jesus has authority over the kingdom of God. Jesus' authority is going to come into question, and we're going to see that He is the point person for the kingdom of God. That as He comes in, He is directing the kingdom of God to have this kind of impact on the world around Him. And certainly, He's going to tell His disciples later on at the end of the book, you know this, you know, you know this verse, He's going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and He's going to give them the great commission. So we're going to see that in the end come to fruition. But even now, we're going to start seeing the, the, the brimming of what is, what is going to come about in the end where Jesus has this authority of the kingdom and he's taking it with him and he's directing it towards people's lives to have a real world impact. And so today what I want to do is we go through this passage, I want to just make two observations as we look at this text and then talk about what that means for us. First, the first observation is this, humanity's impurity is an obstacle to entering the presence of God. Humanity's impurity is an obstacle to entering the presence of God. So we have this little scene here. Let's look at it in verse 1 and 2. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So we have this, this little scene here. After Jesus gets done uh, teaching, he's got tons of people that are following around him. And so he's become something of a celebrity. We saw back in chapter 4 where he goes about doing some healings. And obviously that's attracted quite a bit of attention naturally. And so he's got this big crowd that's following him after he's done teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's coming down, and here in the midst of all of these people, unannounced, comes this leper into the middle of the crowd. But we would do this passage injustice, I think, if we didn't spend just a little bit of time understanding more about 
the feeling of the situation that Matthew has created here by, by telling us this story. I really have to get a sense of just these two verses, what really is going on here. It's something very significant. First, I want you to consider the life of the leper. Okay, just, just consider for just a moment the life of a leper, especially in first century Judaism. This is probably the worst disease anyone could ever have as a first century Jew. Probably at most times throughout history, but certainly as a Jew in the first century to have this kind of leprosy. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly what kind of leprosy it was. Now, just about anything that was kind of a skin disease or even some, some rashes were considered leprosy at the time. The, the worst of those diseases would be what we call today uh, Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is exactly what you think about when you think of the word leprosy. It's the skin disfigurement, the nerve damage, sometimes even resulting in appendages uh, falling off or having to be amputated. And, and so we don't know that that's exactly what it was, but the, he, we know that he's a leper. And we know, we know that he's been, he's been uh, declared having leprosy probably by a priest in the temple. But because it was very difficult to diagnose early on, and it, it really still is difficult to diagnose, because it's difficult to diagnose, anything that had the appearance of leprosy, they would immediately be diagnosed as having leprosy. Because, I mean, to be honest, better safe than sorry is essentially the way it works. So we don't know exactly what kind of leprosy he had, but there is a, a, a result of being declared a leper. Well, one, you're cast out of the city. You're cast out of the camp. It comes with a living restriction. The, the law tells us in Leviticus 13, 45 to 46, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So he's declaring unclean, unclean. Why? So that people know that he's unclean. Steer clear of me. This is what I've got. I've got, I've got leprosy. Now, though we don't know exactly what kind of leper is stumbling into Jesus' presence here, there's a high likelihood it's something like what we would call Hansen's disease today. How do we know that? Well, because there's no declaration of who he is, and yet everybody knows he's a leper, right? So he, he, he's not coming up saying, I've got this rash behind my ear this is something that seems to be pretty obvious to everyone. A leper comes into the camp. And so by, first, by the first century, lepers are, re, are relegated to these leper colonies. Even the law of Moses demands that this happen. It, they, they need to be in leper colonies, to be cast outside of the city, outside of the camp. If they have this disease, they need to be separated into isolation. So if it's le le leprosy that they actually have, then when can they come back in? Never. They're there forever. You're out, outside of the camp. You're outside of human connection. You're living all alone. For how long? Well, it's in, at this time incurable. So, forever. 
leprosy was considered a death sentence. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, Naaman, who is a general in Syria, he has leprosy, and he's told by a slave girl that you, there is a prophet in Israel. You can go to Israel and you can get healed. And so he sends letter to the king of Israel and he says, Hey, I need to be healed. I'm coming your way. And the king says, it's recorded in, in 2 Kings 5, 7, he says, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? So he's basically saying, I'm not able to raise the dead. Why, does he, why is he talking to me? Why is he coming here? It's a death sentence. You have leprosy, you're gone. And it was a death sentence until 1940s. So, I mean, imagine that for just a minute. To contract leprosy was to be considered cursed by God. Remember in the Old Testament, Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses, who is God's leader. And God curses her with leprosy. And Aaron prays, Oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. God uses leprosy as a curse again in Job 18 where the wicked are said to be cursed by God with leprosy. So the point of all this is that we see that this leper is approaching Jesus and this is not simply a man who is sick and dying. This is a man who is a social pariah. He is cast outside of the city. Everyone is to avoid him. He has become the plague that everyone is to steer clear of. But the question that we have to wrestle with here in Matthew 8, 1 and 2, is what is he doing inside the city? What is he doing in amongst the crowd of people? Undeclared. What is he doing here? Doesn't he know? He could infect everyone. Doesn't he know? He is unclean. He could cause us all to be ritually unclean. He could bring ritual impurity on everyone. What is he doing here? Now, of course, leprosy is contagious. We get that. It's contagious through saliva and different things like that. But it seems like a little bit of a harsh treatment to just cast somebody outside the city, put them way out there because they're ceremonially unclean, that they can make everybody else ritually impure. Well, that seems like overkill, doesn't it? It's, it just seems a little bit harsh. It's not, it's not like something that he did on purpose. He contracted this through probably no fault of his own. Doesn't it seem a little bit unfair? The second thing that I want you to consider is the holiness of God. I want you to consider that for just a moment. The holiness of God. This is something familiar to every Jew that would come to the temple to worship. It would be on the forefront of the mind of every single priest that would ever enter the temple. The holiness of God is the very reason for the laws that we find in Leviticus. Now remember, though, let's go all the way back to Genesis. Think with me all the way back to Genesis. You don't have to turn there in your Bible, but just think with me about the story that we've heard, the stories that we've heard from Genesis on through. Remember the kind of closeness that mankind had with God when he was first created. 
Now, we're not told specifically, we don't know exactly what that relationship was like, but for the first three chapters of Genesis, we get a little bit of a sense as to what kind of relationship Adam and God had with one another. We get the idea that they were pretty close. There's some conversations that are going on. God has Adam name the animals and they're there together as he names the animals, whatever he named them, that was its name. There was the crafting of Eve as a helpmate for Adam. There is a a relationship there. He obviously knew them. We find in Genesis 3, after they sinned, God comes walking through the garden during the cool of the day, it says, and this doesn't strike Adam and Eve as odd. So it sounds like this is probably something that he was frequently doing, is walking through the garden with them and coming into commune with them. And they know he's coming, they hear him coming, and they run from him when they sin. But then shortly into the story in Genesis 3, of course, they take the, the bite from the fruit, they, their eyes are open, they know good and evil, the world has thus, thus spun into chaos. The very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel. We see the effect of the fall. Near immediately, Cain kills his brother Abel. Another three chapters after that, in Genesis chapter 6, what do we we find there? The author of Genesis tells us that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So we're, we're six chapters into the whole book, and sin has had this kind of effect on the world of humanity, on on humanity as a whole, right there. So we see the ramifications of sin throughout the book of Genesis, but it's not until we get into the book of Exodus that we come into, uh, we're confronted with God's holiness. And it happens in the third chapter of Exodus, verse 5, where Moses encounters this burning bush. You remember this scene? Moses encounters the burning bush, and he, he just... He's curious, and so he walks up to it. And the burning bush that has spoken to him says, Stop what you're doing. Take off your shoes. Because the ground you're standing on is holy. Uh, Think about that transition for just a moment. The voice in the bush is telling this man that's walking up to him, Stop right there. Don't come any closer. I'm not a God like the gods you've seen in Egypt. I'm not a God that's been carved by hand. I'm not that kind of God. If you come any closer, you'll die. That's the sense that you get when God tells him from the bush, don't come any closer, Uh, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. That's a far cry from what we found in Genesis 1 and 2, is it not? There's a drastic difference between those two passages. Remember, it's at the end of Exodus, and it starts in chapter 26, where we get this long explanation about the tabernacle. You remember this? If you've ever read through your Bible, you, you know uh, Exodus, the very end of Exodus, you're like, there's just an endless description of a tabernacle right there at the end. We start talking about curtains and drapes and tables. You feel like you're on trading spaces or something, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it turns into TLC all of a sudden, and you're reading endless detail about all of these things. Well, it, as a matter of fact, Moses has no desire to necessarily just give you details about curtains and tables. The tabernacle's purpose is what? What is the purpose of the tabernacle? It's so that man can once again safely enter into God's presence. 
It is, a, it is a place where God is going to dwell in the midst of His people. And what do we see there but that it's fashioned a lot like the Garden of Eden. We see it crafted a lot like the Garden of Eden. Like the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle also faces east. Its entrance is also guarded by cherubim. There's lampstands in the tabernacle that resemble the tree of life. And there's the law in the tabernacle, which is representing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's not to mention the stones that are on the priest's garments and several other decor that's around the tabernacle. It's fashioned as God's dwelling place so that He can live amongst His people. But the problem is, these people are sinful. So that's not safe for them. So what do they need? They need a law. They need a procedural code that they have to go through in order to not only have God's presence with them in their camp, but that they can actually go into His presence. And that's what we find in the book of Leviticus. What we find there in the book of Leviticus are very strict laws governing what makes one clean and what makes one unclean. And the laws are meant to prohibit someone from just entering into the presence of God if they had touched anything that was dead, if they had touched any bodily fluids, especially uh, blood. What would happen to them? They would kill over immediately dead. So the, the, the Levitical law was meant to allow them to walk into and come into the presence of God. It's God's mercy to them to allow them to be in His presence. All right, so kind of like we see that the law of Moses, kind of like the sandals on Moses' feet, as he gets close to the burning bush, take off those sandals before you come any closer. They're unclean, they're dirty, leave them there. We also have in Leviticus these extensive laws regarding disease, like, like the leper here that we find in the gospel. He's cast out not only because he can no longer enter into the presence of God, but because if anyone else touches him, they can no longer enter into the presence of God. And before long, you've got a whole community that can no longer enter into the presence of God, which is the whole reason for the tabernacle or the temple to begin with. You see? In other words, God's presence in the community is better than the leper's presence in the community. That's essentially what we're fighting here. It's a battle between God's holiness and the sinfulness or the uncleanness of man. But remember when we get to Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? Something changes in Isaiah 6. Here we find Isaiah in the temple. Right? It says that from the very beginning. He is in the temple. But then he sees a vision of God Isaiah comes into the temple, temple and he stumbles into the presence of God. That's a uh-oh. Every last one of us are supposed to be reading that going, oh, this is bad news. This is bad news. What does Isaiah do then? He says, woe is me. That literally means I'm dead. Woe is me. Why? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. Isaiah's dead. But then something strange happens. Instead of keeling over dead, what does God do 
He sends an angel with tongs to take a coal from the fire. Not something you want to try, right? The angel is afraid to pick up this coal, so he takes it with tongs, but he's going to touch it to Isaiah's lips. Awesome. But when he touches his lips, what does he say? Your sins are atoned for. Instead of God killing Isaiah on the spot, he cleanses him and says, your sins are atoned for. Now, with all of that information in the trunk of our car, let's come back to Matthew. Here we have this leper that's come onto the scene. Now, Matthew's already told us that this Jesus who's standing there in the leper's presence is born of a virgin. He's the Messiah. He is literally God with us. That's tabernacle language. John even says in John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that, that word dwelt is literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He is the embodiment, the temple of God standing right there and the leper just walks into it. Now think about that for a minute. This leper's probably gone years without anybody even touching him. Probably gone years without anybody even speaking to him. And he kneels before the Lord, asking to be cleansed. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So the question is, what is Jesus going to do? Here's Jesus, the, the living embodiment of the temple of God. He's in human flesh, and he's in the presence of a leper. So what will happen in this scene? Which brings us to the second observation. God's holiness prevails over humanity's impurity in Jesus Christ. God's holiness prevails over humanity's impurity in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 3, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And make, make no mistake about it. Matthew uses the words in verse 3 with extreme precision. Look at what it says. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He stretched out his hand and touched him. The reason that this scene stands out so much, or it should stand out in our minds so much, is because in the very next scene, he's going to heal someone from a distance. Meaning, it's not required for Jesus to touch anybody for them to be healed. The centurion is going to walk up to him. We'll talk about it next week. The centurion's going to walk up to him. And what is he going to say to the centurion? Well, I'll come to your house. The centurion says, no, don't come to my house. You can heal him from a distance. And he says, all right, I'll heal him from a distance then. And so he does. So we know from the very next miracle that it's not necessary for him to touch him. But Matthew tells us he stretched out his hand and he touched him. A person that probably had gone years without ever being touched. Much less spoken to. So it makes this scene pop off the page. You can hear the audible gasps from the crowd around him. For one, as a leper has just stumbled into their midst without declaring himself openly. 
And then second, because here's the Holy One of God that we're following, and He reaches out His hand to make Himself unclean. You can hear the tears coming from this leper. Not only because someone's touching him, because he's being cleansed of his defilement. His prayers are answered from the, not, from the prospect of not having to be alone for the rest of his life. Jesus touches him and says, I want to be clean. But there's still a question. As Jesus touched him, and he wants to heal him, but, but here is Jesus' holiness is at stake. Will his holiness, how does holiness work exactly? Does his holiness travel downstream and heal the leper? Or like a salmon, does his uncleanness and defilement swim upstream and grab hold of Jesus? And we get our answer in the next phrase, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So you know that holiness is traveling downstream. Everybody brings a sigh, breathes a sigh of relief. <sighs> Jesus then tells the man to go to the temple and be checked out by the priest. It validates the fact that he is indeed clean. The priest who declared him unclean are now recognizing Jesus' authority. They're saying to him, yes, he is in fact ritually clean. He can be a part of society again. But then Jesus does something strange. We've seen him do before. He does this miracle, and then what does he tell him to do? Don't tell anyone about it. Go and tell no one. Now, why is it that he, he does that? Why does he heal somebody? And then tell him, don't go tell anybody about, about what I've just done. Well, there's a very practical reason to why he doesn't. We see the same story in the book of Mark, and there Mark tells us that this man was charged not to do anything. And so, of course, what did he do? He went and told everyone, which is what I would probably be tempted to do and probably, knowing my fallenness, would actually do. would say, look, I know Jesus told me this, but I, I got to let the cat out of the bag. Okay, just don't tell anybody else, all right? Like, you, it's, he just lets the cat out of the bag. He tells everyone. And so what, what then happens is that it prohibits Jesus from actually going into the towns, and so he has to be relegated to the, the countryside. Why? Because, very simply, the people wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him an earthly king. They either wanted to make him king or they wanted to stone him. And they could never make up their mind as to which one it would be. And so they, but they wanted to make him king. And Jesus is basically saying that you don't know who I am or what I've come to do. That's not what my kingdom is about. I'm not coming to establish that right this moment. I don't want to be an earthly king right now. If I did, my people would have swords. Doesn't he tell Pilate that? Now, there's a reason why this scene is really important for us. Spiritual cleanliness before the Lord is an important theme that runs throughout the book of the, or throughout the entire Bible in the Old Testament all the way to the very last chapter of the Bible. We're talking about, we're dealing with spiritual cleanliness. 
And so there are three really important passages that I want to draw your attention to, and I'm hoping that, that reading these three passages, you'll start to begin to, to build the connection in your mind. The first is in Ezekiel 47, where we see this, this river that's uh, depicted for us, that Ezekiel depicts for us, that he's having a vision of as well. And this river is emanating from the temple of God. The river is coming from the temple of God, and Ezekiel is actually measuring this river. He actually gets in the river. He's told by the angel to stand in it, and so it starts off shallow around his ankles, and then he gradually goes deeper until the river is impassable. And, but then he describes the effect of this river emanating from the temple of God and going into the land. And this is what he says. It should be on the screen behind me, uh, here behind me. It's from Ezekiel 47, starting in verse 8. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So when the, when the water flows into the sea, the water will become flesh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. It's a river of life. Everywhere it goes, the creatures will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water, uh, for, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Engelum. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Verse 12, he says, And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be uh, for food, and their leaves for healing. Okay, it's a river of life. Everywhere it goes, it heals people. So it's got these healing properties. Whatever it touches, it makes clean. Whatever is emanating from the temple of God, this, this river that's emanating from the temple of God, wherever it goes, whatever it touches, it becomes clean. The second passage comes from the book of Revelation, where we're going to see yet another river. This time it's emanating from the throne of God himself. Not from the temple, but from the throne of God. And it's in the new heavens and the new earth. John is depicting where eternity shall be. And this is the way he describes it, picking up on some of Ezekiel's language. He says this, starting in 21-22, and then going all the way through part of chapter 22. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor, anything, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, 
with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There it is again. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and, its, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on the foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So here are these two rivers giving healing to the nations and to the land around them. Similar, we see, to how Jesus purifies this leper, removing the impediment of this leper from worshiping God. He's giving, he's restoring to him life, connecting him back to the temple, allowing him to worship God again and come to his presence. The last thing that I want you to see is in the book of John, chapter 7. Starts in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I hope you're seeing some things here pop up in the text. When we read Ezekiel and Revelation so often, we get stuck in debates about when these are happening and what this is in relation to and all that kind of stuff. I'm not dealing with any of that today. I'm not even talking about any of that. I'm merely wanting you to see that Ezekiel and Revelation passages were merely to bring out John to help you see what is Jesus saying about you? What is Jesus saying about you? We know what Jesus is. He walks into the presence of the leper, falls in front of him. Is, is the leper going to make him unclean or is he going to make the leper clean? Here is emanating from the temple of God. Here is the temple of God. Touching this leper, and what does he do? He makes him clean. But then what does Jesus say about you if you have Jesus? What is he saying about you if the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you? See, what we believe to be true about the gospel is that Jesus came to make us clean, to tear the veil from top to bottom, so that there was no longer any impediment between us and God. So there's no longer a consideration about clean and unclean but that we could come into the Lord's presence. And so now, Jesus, having purified you, having brought you near into the Lord's presence, what is he saying about you if you believe? The emanating from your heart flows, flows rivers of living water. The reason that this is important for us the holiness of God is still a thing we should be concerned about. Amen. It's still a thing that we should be concerned about. But we make up our own cleanliness laws. We have them now. You have them, I have them, we all have them. There are our own laws about who we can associate with and why. Who's welcome at our dinner table and why. Who we can be close to and why. 
They're cleanliness laws. That's all they are. But what Jesus came to do is tear those away and establish one very clear priority. There are the saved and the unsaved. There are those welcome into the presence of God and there are those who are right now under his wrath. We are to have no more distinctions than that. So what that means is we don't need to be afraid about who sits at our dinner table. We don't need to be afraid about who's welcome in our house. I had a lady one time. She loves the Lord. This is not a negative example. Please understand that. She loves the Lord. She's a good person. She desires to do what's right, but she presents to me this question. She says, in my business, uh, I meet with people all the time, and I have women over at my house, and we have these uh, sort of business-type parties. You, you, you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about, where she sells products to them and things like that. And the issue is about makeup in particular. And there was a man that wanted to come who was transgendered. And her question to me was very honest. She says, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to say to him or this transgendered person, I don't know what to, to say to them. I, my inclination tells me I, I don't want that in my home. My, my gut tells me I, 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 don't, I don't really, that's not what the purpose of this is, and I don't, I don't want them uh, to, to kind of be in the circle. And she's, she's stumbling, and she's trying to think of, of how to say this, and it's mainly because her gut was wrong, I think. See, the truth is, the only way a person is going to hear the words of life, the truth of the gospel, is if we bring them close. It's not by sending them out to a leper colony. That's by having them at our dinner table. It's by opening the word of God with them. Unabashedly. Unashamedly. Reading the words of scripture. And saying, here's what the word of God says. But I know there's concerns. There's natural concerns in our heads. Bells that are ringing. That say, well, I'm worried. That if I do this, that it will get confused with me accepting that lifestyle. Now you've heard this. You've thought this. I've thought this. But it concerns me. I, I might communicate to them that I'm accepting the way you communicate that you're accepting is you participate in it. Because these cleanliness and uncleanliness laws, here's how they play out so often. We have a child that comes out of the closet and we say to them, that's unacceptable. You're not welcome in my home. Not so long as that's the case with you. And you're not welcome to bring that other person in our home either. But then our other child who is living with their boyfriend or girlfriend is perfectly fine at our dinner table. Why? That's not the kind of people we are. You have the words of truth. Nothing is going to make you unclean except participating in it. The child of God doesn't participate in it. Nor should we allow activities, sinful activities in our house. That doesn't mean the people can't sit at our dinner table and hear the gospel. 
I realize these are complicated situations. But what does it mean when the kingdom of heaven meets the real world? See, what Jesus is saying in John is that in you is the river of life. Flowing out of you is the river of life. The Holy Spirit that's in you is the river of life. Able to not only share the gospel, but to open the mind of the unbelieving, open the ears and the eyes of the unbelieving, that they can see and repent from their sins and turn to God and receive healing and restoration. Be welcomed into His presence once again. The only way is by hearing the gospel coming from your mouth. So what's our prerogative in this world? It's to be a witness. To be a witness to the restoration that Jesus brings between us and God. That doesn't, we don't, we don't cave on sin. We don't compromise on sin and the holiness of God. No, that's the precise reason why we have to tell. It's because one day the unclean, the unsaved, are going to enter into the presence of God like this leper. But the response is not going to be healing. But condemnation. Our desire should be to spare them of that judgment believe it ourselves and then spare them of that judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I realize this is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to know who to reach out to and who to talk to, who to bring in. and It's hard for me to make relationships with people that are so different from me. God, I pray that you would help us all, help me especially get over myself. Get over my sense of superiority and realize that I, I was a sinner, was made clean by your work on the cross, by your grace and mercy that you extended to me. Father, allow us to have relationships with people that are outside the household of faith. That we may continue to have conversations with people that are different from us, that believe differently. Give us the boldness to stand for the truth of your word in love. to share with them the waters that we've bathed in, the river of life. In Jesus' name, amen.